The governor of Missouri, his son, and another passenger take off to make a short flight in Missouri when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this plane to crash during flight? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. And it's been a few days for us. <laughs> yeah. And an entire week for you. Yep. So here we are. Here we are. We are back in full swing. Back to your regularly scheduled programming, in theory. Or something. Also, just a reminder, we will be talking about our vacation on this post episode for today. So if you want to go listen to all the stuff that happened on vacation, you're going to have to be at least a $5 patron. And we'll be discussing all the lovely lumps and bumps Along the way as well. Of vacation. And the good things. Yeah. Well, that's included in the lumps and bumps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they're good lumps and bumps. I didn't say they were bad lumps and bumps. There were some bad lumps and bumps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they weren't horrible. We figured it all out. Life could have been worse. So if, if you want to listen to that, you got to be a patron, just so you all are aware. We did just send out merch, too, so if you're waiting on merch, merch should actually have gotten to you by now. If you have not received your merch and you were a patron starting in June, please let us know. <laughs> yep. Because we need, then need to check to make sure if it got sent back to us. Yep. Right. So merch does me? not include ducks. We have not no, sent ducks. Ducks are yet. still in the process. Yeah. If you ask for ducks, we need to order more ducks. <laughs> Because y'all ran us dry, which was kind of the point, and then it took off way more than we thought it would. And, and that's okay. We have to get more ducks. We'll get more ducks. To send the ducks. So we will get to ducks. We will let you know when those are on their way. Yep. Miranda's not her usual puppy mood. She'll get there. Yeah. Sorry, guys. It's been a long day. There's some stuff that came up, personal stuff that I'm trying to work through. So Life is as life does. Yeah. So I'm going to try my best, friendos. Should we out-pep you? Should we be extra peppy? I don't know. That's, I don't think I'm gonna let you make that to, decision. It's hard to do that and talk about this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'll just hopefully I'll get in the swing of things. <laughs> well, figure it out. Okay. All that said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering November eight three five four November. So obviously this is a tail number and not a flight number. And thanks to my coworker, ex coworker now, Mandy, who is from Missouri and wanted to hear about this episode. Yes. So we're covering it. And yes, this is GA. And no, normally we would not cover GA, general or aviation, for those that don't know. We don't normally cover general aviation crashes because there's a lot of them and they tend to be very repetitive too. There's a lot of the same cause. This one's a special one. This one's a little bit special for reasons not necessarily from the crash itself. But we'll get there. This, I do get to talk about a system I've never talked about before. Yes. So there's that. That is true. This occurred on October 16th of 2000. This was a flight from St. Louis Downtown Airport in St. Louis, Missouri, to County Memorial Airport in New Madrid, Missouri. So it's a short flight short within flight, yeah. Missouri. This is a Cessna 335, which are actually pretty rare. It is an unpressurized version of the Cessna 340. They're actually... Basically identical on the outside. 
They have the same engine, same look, the same windows, same everything, except that the Cessna 340 was built with a pressurization system and pressurized doors. So that's really the only difference between the two. It's a twin-engine piston airplane. It's actually pretty powerful. I think it usually can seat up to, I think it's, I don't know if it's six or eight. I think it's eight. You can seat up to eight. Huh. Which is pretty solid amount of seats on a little GA airplane. Tiny airplane, yeah. Yeah, but it is a twin-engine piston. So they're actually really good airplanes. I've, I've sat in one before, taxied around in one before, and they're they're nice. Smooth, quiet. Like for a piston airplane, they're they're nice. Like you don't need headsets in those airplanes because they're, oh, wow. they're quiet. So I don't know about the 335 maybe because it's unpressurized. Maybe it's a little different situation. But anyways, nice airplane usually. But we're going to talk about one that didn't end so well. Pilot. It is on this podcast. Yep. We wouldn't be here. Which means right. something happened. But it's rare. We don't really get to talk about general aviation aircraft very often. And there's far more types in general aviation than there are in commercial aviation. So the pilot for this flight, the sole pilot, was Randy Carnahan. He was 44 years old at the time. And he had 1,829 hours total. Of which 513 hours were on the Cessna 335. This was a campaign flight carrying the governor of Missouri, who was campaigning for a seat in the Senate. His name was Mel Carnahan, so the pilot was his son. Ah, I did not know that. <laughs> yep. Also traveling with them was the campaign advisor and former chief of staff for Mel, and his name is Chris Stifford. The three of them had arrived in St. Louis at that airport that morning at around 11.40 a.m. They then attended four campaign events around St. Louis that day. That's a lot. That's that a lot. That sounds awful. They did it quick, too. They were only on the ground from 11.40 until they left about 7 o'clock. List of professions I don't ever want. Yeah. Politician. Yep, me neither. You have to be a people person. I'm well, not a people person. And you Neither have to I. be a politician person. <laughs> yeah, you have to be a people it's, person and it, be able to work in politics. It is a very particular kind of person. Not entirely dissimilar to lawyers, but they usually don't like to cross either. Weirdly. They can. They can. There's, they have. There's been a few but, senators that have been lawyers. Oh, Our yeah. VP was a lawyer. Yep. And it's not a bad thing to be one either because it teaches you a lot of things about the legal system, but also, like, the governing bodies of the United States. So I don't think it's necessarily that that bad of a thing to do. Anyways, later in the day, the pilot asked the security officer that was traveling with them for the campaign to take him back to the airport early so that he could begin preparing for the flight that evening to County Memorial Airport. The son or the father? No, the, pi- the son, the pilot. Yeah. Uh, okay. That would make sense. I'm just making sure. Yeah. I'm like, it would be really awkward yes. <laughs> sending uh, someone to prepare. I'll just refer to him as the pilot from now on as I would normally the captain. Okay. So. Okay. When I say the pilot, it's the son. Well, I, I, I guess I just missed that. Yes. Part. Yeah. yeah. And this is part 91. This is not even a charter operation. Because he is his son, and this is not any kind of for hire flight. This is just them moving about. Yeah. They're allowed to do that. Under Part 91, which is literally just all of general aviation, VFR, IFR, doesn't really matter. It's just non-hired flying. Yeah. So this is Part 91, which we never talk about. I don't think he actually had his commercial rating, so he couldn't have been hired to do it anyway. Right. 
And they didn't hire him, so that's convenient. Yeah, that's what you get for having a son who can fly a plane. Yeah, but this was this is a nicer airplane, though. I mean, there's still many, multiple million dollar airplanes usually, although it depends. Depends on the age, the condition, things like that. The pilot then called for weather information while they were driving back to the airport, him and the security officer. He then also called the fixed base operation, or the FBO, FBO, which is where the airplane was sitting. It's the facility at most GA airports, as well as even at, you'll find them at commercial airports. You just don't ever go to them Mm -hmm. as a passenger normally. These FBOs are where, there are things like signature aviation, if you look them up there, they provide fuel, they have lounges, they do, sometimes they do catering. But it's a place for these GA airplanes to go and be taken care of while they're at an airport. Yeah. So he called the FBO to request fuel be added to the wings tip tanks. So these airplanes are fueled manually for each tank versus with an airliner. Usually there's one point of contact and it fuels the whole airplane. Yeah. Balances itself. With this airplane, it has four. It has one in each wing. And then it has these large pontoon-looking things on the end of each wing that are called tip tanks. Interesting. Those are also filled. So he had the fuel, he had the tip tanks topped off. So they were filled full. Does the tip tank flow into the main tank? It basically does, yes. So as you would use the main tank and you want to balance out, you start using the tip tanks, then it just basically flows into the main tank and starts from there. At least on some airplanes, that's how it works. I'm not entirely sure about this one. But. The pilot and the security officer arrived at the airport around 6.35 p.m. So, mind you, they've only been on the ground for, like, eight hours at this point, And they've done four big events, which is, like, Jesus. Wow. I cannot <laughs> even imagine. Getting around St. Louis and doing all that stuff like crazy. This airport's pretty close to downtown. I'm exhausted but, just thinking about it. Yeah. I can barely get out of bed. Right. Much less trying to do four things in a day. Right. That's like a lot. At least it's October when this happened. Yeah. And it's not like July. Yeah. Yep. That much is true. The pilot then checked the weather on a computer at the FBO and paid for the fuel before heading to the airplane to set up for the flight. The two other passengers arrived at 6.45 p.m., so only 10 minutes later, and went straight to the airplane to board. The pilot took the left seat in the cockpit while the passenger sat, of course, in the rear. Yeah. This is in general aviation. Normally, this is, the only reason this is clarified is because technically as a passenger, they can sit in the right seat. Yeah, and we have with Brendan yeah. before when we've flown with Brendan. Yeah, in general aviation, they can sit in the right seat. There's nothing wrong with that. They just aren't in operation of the aircraft. Spoiler, but, it's a good thing they didn't. Yep. But also, it's just more comfortable in the rear, especially when they're having to do what they're doing. Well, and the aircraft can fit six to eight, so it's not like a tiny 172. No, right. Where the one back seat is cramped and uncomfortable. Right. No, it's not like that. These ones actually have like a little aisle down the middle. Mm. Um, small, very small. You can't really stand up in this airplane at all, that's for sure. But Even Miranda? I mean, yeah. I have no, trouble with like in a CRJ. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, like, I can't stand up underneath the baggage. The bins. Com- the bins without hitting my head yeah. at CRJ. So this is even smaller. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Including me. It's it's pretty small inside. I mean, it's not meant to be stood inside. I mean, you kind of hunch to get to your seat. And this one is set up probably like most are, which is two seats immediately behind the seats in the cockpit facing rearward. And then two facing those mm-hmm. right behind that so that there's, like, facing seats. Um, and then two more at the very rear of the aircraft, basically. I'm just going to look this up, just because we keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm confused. Why? So it looks like the seats in the back are, like, alternating? None of them are side by side. The reason that they do that is because of where the door is. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The door is on the left side toward the rear of the airplane. Oh, so, that makes more sense. So it looks like there's one seat behind the left pilot's seat that faces rearward. Yep. And then there are three forward-facing seats, and they're all staggered. Yeah. So no one is sitting next to anyone. No. Right. And that's pretty normal. So normal just, just to like paint that. the picture in your head. Sure. 7.02 p.m. and 10 seconds. The pilot contacted the ground controller for their instrument flight rules clearance to the... County Memorial Airport. The controller cleared the flight on the IFR flight plan that they had filed to fly as planned and instructed the pilots to climb to 2,100 feet after takeoff and then expect to climb to 7,000 feet after about 10 minutes after takeoff. So this is a pretty normal clearance. 7.02 p.m. and 43 seconds, the ground air traffic controller instructed the flight to taxi to runway 30 left. 7.15 p.m. and 20 seconds, so now... 13 minutes have gone by. The aircraft was positioned near the end of runway 30 left, and the pilot contacted the air traffic controller to notify them that they were ready to depart. So the reason it took so long is because in an airplane like this, you usually have to do a run-up. A run-up, yeah, I was going to say. They probably had a run-up. Piston engines. So you just basically run the engines up to a certain RPM, higher, not all the way to takeoff speed or anything, but um, sitting still, and you just make sure that everything's all the gauges properly. are in the yeah. green, everything's running the way it's supposed to run. So... We have to do one of those when we fly with Brendan. Yep. So. Four seconds later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff and instructed the pilot to turn to a heading of 200 degrees after takeoff. The flight then took off from runway 30 left at St. Louis Downtown Airport. At 7.17 p.m. and 10 seconds, the air traffic controller then again instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 200 degrees. Eight seconds later, the pilot acknowledged the instructions, so there's a little bit of, like, lag going on here with... They took off. He's given him instructions now twice to turn to a certain heading. And he finally acknowledged that. Hmm. 7.18 p.m. and 19 seconds, the pilot contacted the St. Louis Tracon, which is basically center control. It's how they control all aircraft within a very large area that are already airborne. Yeah. Not landing, not any of that. Denver has a very large Tracon. Yes. Denver is a very large portion of the country, actually. 30 seconds later, the airplane was flying at 2,200 feet when the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 180 degrees and climb to 2,600 feet. The pilot acknowledged these instructions. 7.20 p.m., the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 150 degrees and climb to 2,600 feet. However, 7 seconds later, the pilot stated to the air traffic controller, quote, 4-5 November, we're having some problems uh, with primary attitude indicator. We'd like a little bit higher climb, end quote. So something's up. 
The air traffic controller responded that he could issue a higher altitude to the flight, quote, in about two miles, end quote. This isn't entirely abnormal. So basically they're flying along and what he's telling them is two miles distance from where they are then he could issue them a, a climb. But basically there's traffic somewhere traffic, along the yeah. way that if he started climbing where he was, he'd intercept. So. Yeah. And we know what happens when that happens. Right. So rather than give them a time, they give them a distance. Yeah. Makes more sense. Right. Especially when you're talking about general aviation because the speeds tend to vary much more widely. Than... Because aircrafts are different. Right. Can it... go certain speeds at different times. Right. Like in GA, we're talking a Cessna 150 might cruise at like 80 knots. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this Cessna 340 can cruise at 200 knots. So, you know, it's it's a wide range. So there's quite the range of speeds, so they give them distance rather than time. 7.20 p.m. and 51 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the pilot to state their current altitude. The pilot then informed the air traffic controller that they were flying at 3,600 feet. Uh... <laughs> the, air traffic the air traffic controller responded, quote, Okay, the uh, assigned altitude was 2,600, but climb and maintain 4,000. End okay. quote. Take it and tried. Yep. It's already done. Just go. Right. The pilot responded, quote, we've got our hands full right now, end quote. 7.21 p.m. in eight seconds, the air traffic controller stated, quote, uh, Roger, you in some sort of difficulty, end quote. The pilot stated, quote, we got a primary attitude indicator that's not uh, reading properly, having to try and fly off the co-pilot, end quote. So there's an indicator in the cockpit that's not working correctly, and he's having to use the one on the right side. Mm -hmm. Like, look at the one on the right side to try to verify basically we'll talk a lot more about this in depth later or you will <laughs> it'll be fun <laughs> Seven twenty-one p.m in 20 seconds the air traffic controller advised the pilot to try to fly the airplane as level as possible on eddy heading and informed the pilot that he would try to climb them to as high of an altitude as possible as soon as possible so basically they want to get away from the ground right <laughs> is the goal because you want to try to figure out what's going on right so they want to get up to a higher altitude. There's another reason they want to get up to a higher altitude, though. And that's because they're flying in the clouds in the dark. Oh. This is a situation that's just going to keep unraveling from there. The pilot responded, quote, appreciate it, end quote. 7.21 p.m. and 35 seconds, the air traffic controller told the pilot to fly straight ahead, quote, unquote, and stated that he was trying to get him to VFR conditions. So trying to get him where he could actually see, mm -hmm. where he wasn't in the clouds anymore. Are they on a VFR flight plan? IFR. They're on IFR? Yeah. Okay. Which is, so they're legal. Everything's legal, technically. But now he's having an issue with an instrument, a primary one. So that's a problem. What is the weather at this point? Uh, I believe it's rain and clouds. Oh. It's a bad time. Not uh, great. Yeah. Okay, no. now, I, now I get it. Okay. Low-lying clouds, but thick with a few C's. 17 seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to climb to 4,000 feet and, quote, let me know when you get on top, end quote. What he means by that is he's trying to get him above the clouds. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's the hope that the clouds would be below that 4,000 feet. The pilot acknowledged this. 7.22 p.m., the air traffic controller asked another pilot flying in the area at 5,000 feet if he was on top of the clouds. And that pilot responded that he was not. Uh-oh. 7.22 p.m. in 33 seconds, the air traffic controller reported to the flight, quote, I don't have much hope for getting you on top. Uh, people say it's like about 12.5. Oh. So 12,500 feet. And this airplane nope. is not pressurized, which, okay, legally, they can fly at 12,500 feet. However, 
You Once you get above 12,000 feet, the rules start kicking in for oxygen requirements, yeah. especially when you have passengers. So I'm not going to get too in-depth on that because there's a lot with that. If this were a Cessna 340, psh, no big deal. Pressurized, shoot right up there. But because this is non-pressurized airplane, and I don't know if he's carrying oxygen on board. We don't want people getting hypoxic. Right. (laughs) Probably not a good idea, is the gist of that. It's okay, they don't make it that far anyway. Right. 7.22 p.m. and 50 seconds, the pilot stated that he wanted to head toward Jefferson City Memorial Airport in Jefferson City, Missouri, as it seemed to have better weather conditions. I assume he was probably listening to the ATIS information for airports around the area, wherever he could get a frequency from. Yeah. The air traffic controller then asked the pilot if his instrument was showing a heading of 150 degrees, and the pilot responded, quote, well, the compass is showing due south, 180 degrees, end quote. 7.23 p.m. and 12 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to 120 degrees, and the pilot acknowledged. So that's interesting. He didn't say that the heading indicator said 15180. He said the compass Compass. did. Yep. Those are two different mechanisms in the cockpit. They are two different mechanisms in the cockpit. So the compass is really... A compass. The backup for the backup, and it's very mm, last resort. I'll put it that way. Every airplane has one, though. So remember later about how he said the compass, because investigators don't bring that up. Right. And here's the thing about compasses. It doesn't really matter what airplane you're in. Not very reliable. Solid. Not very reliable. And it's not to say that you can't use them at all. They just tend to be, there's quite a deviation, which actually with most airplanes, there's a little, uh, every airplane actually, there's a little deviation chart for every 90 degrees and then some, uh, depending on the airplane, that tell you how far off (laughs) it's actually known to be at the last inspection. Oh, that's nice, actually. So they give you an idea of about where it's supposed to be, but... And they find, if you're ever curious, they find that deviation using a compass that's printed on the ground at the airport. Yep. That's correct. The one at Centennial in... Centennial? Yep. Is on the south side of the airport, I believe. There's two of them now. Oh, okay. There's one on the south side and one on the east end. But you can look at those from Google Maps. Yeah. They're, I think they're painted in gold? These ones are painted in blue. Oh, okay. Yep. So there's big giant compasses literally painted at a lot of general aviation airports, and it's just it's the craziest thing. Like, they're literally giant compasses painted on the tarmac. And so you just line up with the compass and then read the compass in your aircraft, and you're like, well, it's this much off. Right. It's a very manual process, but it works. In airliners, they have certain calibration processes they can use, but it's still not always accurate. So... Just an interesting little tidbit. Sorry, I'm going to repeat this one. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to 120 degrees, and the pilot acknowledged, so he's not telling him to turn further than he originally turned before. Yeah. And then at 7.23 p.m. and 39 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to, quote, climb and maintain 7,000 at pilot discretion, end quote. So he's telling the pilot that whenever you have time, try your best to climb to 7,000 feet. Right. The pilot acknowledged this and added, quote, we would like to go direct to Jefferson City if possible, end quote. So he's telling him again, like, I want to go to Jefferson City. Yeah. Because he, the air traffic controller didn't really give him any acknowledgement about this the first time. Right. Air traffic controller clarified with the pilot where they, where he wanted to go, and the pilot verified Jefferson City one more time. And then at 7.23 p.m. and 55 seconds, the air traffic controller stated, quote, in that case, turn right to heading 270 degrees. Okay. I- But they already discussed that. Like, he already said that twice, that he wanted to go to Jefferson City. Right. So, 
he now clarified with him one more time, and now he's giving him even further instructions to turn. Right. right. I just don't understand why the ATC controller didn't catch that the first time. I think because right now he's really just focused on where the airplane is, getting him to altitude, and what his situation is. He's not really focused on where he's going. He's focused on where he is. The pilot acknowledged the turn instructions and assigned altitude of 7,000 feet. At 7.25 p.m. and 12 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the pilot, quote, It appears you're heading northwest, but uh, you're basically in a good direction, end quote. So, in general, he's kind of going in the right direction. Well, because 270 is dead west. west. Dead west. And so now he's going northwest. So, assuming he's going off of his compass, yeah, there, there, there's a discrepancy. If there's a deviation on that compass, too, then he might be flying a little off of west. Well, when it says west. Why is he not using his heading indicator? I'll get to that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 7.28 p.m. and 36 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the pilot if he was still having, quote, attitude problems, end quote. I just like that. <laughs> you have an attitude problems? Yes. <laughs> I have a f***ing attitude problem. <laughs> yeah. Bite exactly. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotta find the humor somewhere, right? That's right. The pilot responded, quote, the attitude problems are continuing, end quote. <laughs> I am continuing that attitude problem. <laughs> I am continuing to have an attitude. Also, f*** you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, the flight reached about 7,400 feet, and the airplane began a left turn to the southeast. What the hell is going on? <laughs> like... Okay, so he's going in the general right direction, right? Mm -hmm. And even if his compass is off, okay. But now he's going the exact opposite direction, and mm -hmm. he's at the wrong altitude. Mm -hmm. Something's happening. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. you are correct. You're right. Something is wrong. Yes. Yep. Is it, like, a really stupid thing? No. Okay, at least it's not the stupid thing I'm thinking. Well. It's not. It's not, it's not entirely stupid. He could have been smarter. Sure, but mm, no. Anyway. I mean, this is still... I understand what's happening, and I oh, understand 100%. why it's happening. I, I'm just the, the, the yeah, the, like it's like taking a U-turn. Like so, what? Right. So from that, under what circumstances would you take a U-turn? That's foreshadowing. Moving on. If yeah. you like saw oncoming traffic, maybe we'll talk about it. The airplane then began descending slightly before varying between 7,000 and 7,200 feet. So holding about that 7,000 he was assigned, but varying a little. 7.29 p.m. and 31 seconds, the pilot stated, quote, We're going to need some vectors somewhere where we can get down VFR, end quote. So he really just wants to have visuals. Yeah. Anything. The air traffic controller stated that he would check the other airports in the area for the weather conditions and see what was what, see if there was anything that he, like, had better conditions than anything where he was. Yeah. In the meantime, they should, quote, just go straight ahead. Doesn't make any difference what direction that is. Just go straight ahead, end quote. So, Skies must be not busy. Right. Probably not. It's I mean, raining. It's, it's in the mm -hmm. evening, right? Yeah. And it's raining. There's definitely not a lot of GA traffic in the area, down where he is. And, I mean, any kind of airliner traffic's probably climbing out away from him. So yeah. it's not, he's not really going to be interfering with anything. Just fly. I don't care where you go. Right. Just fly. At this point, what the air traffic controller is really, really trying to say is, like, quit turning. Yeah. Just, just fly Stop. in a straight just line. Straight. Straight line for, like, 
five we'll, minutes we'll while we figure, figure some stuff it out. out. Just stop turning. Because right now I think there's so I think he even realized, the air traffic controller realized that there was just too many things happening with direction changes, changes of it airport. Just, to and me it wouldn't make sense. They like, needed the time. Yeah. He had like, the fuel. They had the fuel on board to just figure, fly. Yeah, fly. And figure, figure out, out where to go next. What yeah. to do next. 7.30 p.m. and 17 seconds, the air traffic controller told the pilot that the weather at Columbia Regional Airport was 7,000 foot overcast with seven miles visibility and light rain. So that means that the bottoms of the cloud are at 7,000 feet. So that's a pretty good condition. You yeah. can get there and be in VFR. So that's that's the goal. The air traffic controller then told the pilot that the further west that he went, the better the weather would be. And he asked the pilot if he wanted to head west. 7.30 p.m. and 35 seconds, the pilot responded, that would be great, quote-unquote. This, unfortunately, though, was the last time that that flight would ever be heard from. Oh, no. 7.30 p.m. and 37 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to, quote, make a slow right turn as much as you can, the standard rate, as much as you can to make this a stabilized affair, end quote. So, your traffic controller is really like, you make the turn, but make it slow. And as much as you can, just try to make it a normal turn. And part of the reason he was doing that is because he wanted to give the pilot instructions on when to straighten out. Yeah. After this instruction, the airplane did begin a right turn. And at 7.31 p.m. and 17 seconds, the airplane descended to about 6,500 feet. So we lost 500 feet all of a sudden. 7.31 p.m. and 22 seconds, the air traffic controller told the flight to stop turning and to fly straight ahead. 7.32 p.m. and 28 seconds, so a little over a minute later, the air traffic controller tried to contact the flight, but with no reply. Five seconds later, the air traffic controller stated over the radio that the radar contact was lost with the flight. Oh, no. So somewhere in that minute time, basically, they, he wasn't having any contact with the airplane, and it wasn't following any instructions. And all of a sudden, it fell off radar. Not a good sign. The airplane had fallen into a wooded area, striking trees before impacting the ground hard. The airplane disintegrated on impact, leaving only small parts, mostly 12 to 24 inches in size. So, small. Oh. We're talking small pieces. All three on board, unfortunately, perished in the crash. I mean, this was a hard impact into trees in the dark. Yeah. And then rocks. And then rocks, yeah. There was rocks involved, too. I mean, they struck the ground underneath the trees, which was a very rocky area, and it just, I mean, it disintegrated the airplane. Oh. Unfortunately, that's all I've got for now. So we're going to take the break here. Otherwise, the second half will be very short. Yes. And we will be back at you with the investigation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. All right. So this investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board. Or the NTSB. NTSB. Yep. Because this was a general aviation or GA aircraft and Part 91 flight, they didn't have any black boxes to work with. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. So, their resources were wreckage, witness statements, ATC, radar recordings, pilot logbooks, and maintenance records. 
And that's right about the order that we're going to work off of. Yep, sort of. From the wreckage investigation, though longer than I make it out to be, investigators determined that there was not any pre-existing mechanical failures or malfunctions of the engines or the structure. Great. Wonderful. The airplane's in good condition. Radar, ATC, and wreckage evidence showed that the pilot lost control at 7,700 feet and was making a climbing right turn and then fell in an upright attitude and made contact with the trees with a speed of over 300 knots. Ooh. Which is more than this airplane is capable of doing in a straight line. So... It was some fall... It was falling very straight down. Yeah. Basically. So what about an electrical failure? Well, based on the fact that the pilot remained in contact with ATC and the radar maintained a signal from the transponder, there's no indication of an electrical failure. Check. But the air traffic control recording did reveal that the captain, pilot, whatever, was having issues with an instrument, the primary attitude indicator, also known as the artificial horizon. It seemed like the right side indicator was working, so it wasn't a total system failure. What exactly went wrong? Let's first delve into the the behind-the-scenes work of an attitude indicator. Behind the attitude indicator is a gyro, which works by maintaining part of the instrument as level with the ground. So really, the indicator works by one part staying stationary and the whole plane rotating around it. Yep. It's kind of a weird way to think about it, but it's not inaccurate. The gyro has to maintain spinning for this mechanism to work, so it does so using air from from each engine's vacuum system which I had no idea existed. It makes sense. It blows air into the gyro, the gyro spins. Yep, and it spins fast. Well, we talked about (laughs) gyros in the... Ages ago? Yeah. Many, many The crash that hit a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I realize that that's not very helpful. I think it was in New Mexico. The TWA. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. TWA. TWA 260. Yeah. So... So how does the gyro spin? It takes air from the engine, right? basically. I've used an electric gyro, and it's really interesting. So this is a weird, really weird little tidbit, small tangent, but just for an idea of how strong a gyro really is. Um, I used to do some videography work with a friend of mine who was an aerial photographer. So he had an airplane, he'd go up, take photos. And I did video work, so he took me up and we did some video. And before I used any kind of gimbal or anything, he had a mount for the camera that had a massive gyro in it. And then there was a battery that he would just stick between the seats, big giant battery. So this gyro, it would take a solid 10 minutes to get up to full speed. And actually in most general aviation aircraft with these little attitude indicators, it's pretty similar in timing. Actually, it takes five to 10 minutes for it to come fully alive. So anyways, this gyro would get to spinning at full speed. By the time it's going, I think it's at like something like 20,000 RPM or something like that. Good grief. It's insanity. And so I'm holding this thing and you can feel it vibrating. But the craziest thing about it is when you need to tilt the camera, it takes a lot of force. You have to put so much force just to tilt the camera down a little bit. And then once you get it there, it wants to hold that as stable as possible because the gyro wants to keep itself in the condition it's in. That's the whole point of a gyro. So that's the same way that it works in an airplane, basically. The airplane spins around that gyro. But in your instance, it was using electrical power to spin the gyro. Right. This is using air. Air. Right. To put in perspective a little more how it works, one engine feeds one gyro, therefore one indicator, and the other engine feeds the other. Oh, okay. So you're starting to see where there's some debunking happening. Yeah. 
Both attitude indicators were recovered from the wreckage, as well as both vacuum pumps. You know, the things that feed the gyro. Very important. Both left and right engine vacuum pumps had rotational marks, meaning both were working at the time of impact. Okay. Which is further verified by the vacuum gauge system failure indicator button being retracted. Say that five times fast. (laughs) No. Investigators surmise that the rotor for the gyro was most likely spinning, but maybe not at a high enough RPM to keep the display upright. That makes sense because the primary or left side attitude indicator was upside down when it was found. Oof. This is bad. This is very bad. That's horrifying. So if you ever get in an airplane before the instruments come to life, you know that the attitude indicator is uh, upside down until it writes itself. Yep. So, and as Nick said, that can take five to ten minutes. Is that the thing that shows you the horizon? Yes. Yep. Blue and brown. Yep. Yeah, so if you ever get in a plane with Brendan next time, notice that that's upside down until we're, like, at the run-up area. Yep. So I, I would never have even noticed that. It'll either be, some of them are upside down, and there's actually, in airliners, because the systems also take a little while to get, to spin up, it's funny because they won't just come alive on their own. There's a calibration pull, and so they'll sit to the side, and then you pull it, and it goes, and then it comes to center. But in most airplanes, you'll see that either they're upside down or tilted all the way over to the side yeah. and all the way at the bottom. And so it takes time for it to come all the way up to center. Huh. So it takes about five minutes usually with a lot of airplanes. Interesting. So usually by about the time you're doing your run-up, because yeah. it takes you time to get the airplane going, get yourself set up, taxi over to the run-up area. By the time you're over there, usually it's up to center. So there's something wrong with the gyro. spin. It's not spinning fast enough. Correct. Mm-hmm. So they're not getting appropriate... Information. Information from the instrument on where the airplane is. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure he knows he's not upside down. Right. Oh, I would hope so. You'd be surprised, though. I mean, it's it's dark. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Spatial disorientation is real. Yeah. Which is probably why he was doing the bull with the turning. We'll get into it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just swearing up a storm today. That's okay. (laughs) Investigators looked into the service history of both the attitude indicators as well as the vacuum pumps. The attitude indicator flight director was installed as an overhauled unit in 1996 and was removed, cleaned, and reinstalled in December of 1999, 10 months before the accident. Assumedly, no issues with the indicator itself. The vacuum pumps were factory new and installed in the spring of 1997. The airframe and power plants, or A&P mechanic, who worked on the aircraft, said that the pilot told him on September 25th, 2000, a few weeks before the accident, that the left engine vacuum pump had failed. Ooh. So the plane was brought in on September 27th, and on the 28th, the left engine vacuum pump was replaced. Wow. And a post-maintenance operational check proved both pumps were working. Or they should be. I mean, if it's brand new. Yeah. Cessna released a bulletin, a service bulletin, regarding the vacuum system a year before the accident, and it outlined a new check that should be added to the engine start and shutdown procedures, checking to ensure that the vacuum system was uh, working. Yeah. Good plan. Yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't there before, but you know. Good plan anyway. Those who flew with the pilot said that he used this new procedure, and the checklist was actually even found in the wreckage. Huh. Mm. All that said, investigators couldn't determine exactly why the left side attitude indicator failed. Isn't that crazy? I mean, how would you? Somewhere along the way, something still didn't work. Could it have been an engine problem? Well, here's the thing. I, I personally still suspect the vacuum pump 
because the heading indicator is also run by it. Mm. And he couldn't use it, remember? He was using the compass. Now, investigators never mentioned that, which was weird to me now hearing the story, since I didn't really read the story. Uh, So that's weird. It also affects the turn indicator. Which is pretty much his other backup, and this is part of why he was like, try to do as stabilized of a turn as you can. Because if you're having a problem with one, you might be having a problem with all three. But the one thing that this air traffic controller, I, I think, picked up on, but I think didn't, I don't know, I feel like he should have been doing more to help, is it's pretty obvious that this pilot was disoriented. Well, hold on. Let me keep going. Yeah. So it was found that the right side indicator was working because yeah. it showed the same attitude as the aircraft had been in at impact. Okay. That's horrifying. So why did they crash? He had one. Fly with it. Right. After first reporting the malfunction, the pilot continued flying for 11 minutes, including two heading changes, meaning he had full control of the aircraft. But that right side indicator wasn't very big, and it was on the other side of the instrument panel. Right. Meaning the pilot would have had to make frequent and rapid left-to-right head movements. This motion is known to disrupt the liquid in the inner ear. Yep. Why is this a problem? It causes spatial disorientation, which would have been further exacerbated by the dark, the rain, and the turbulence we didn't talk about. Yep. So it's a great time. In particular, investigators point out the Coriolis illusion. Quote, The pilot had been in a turn long enough for the fluid in the air canal to move at the same speed as the canal. A movement of the head in a different plane, such as looking at something in a different part of the cockpit, may set the fluid moving, thereby creating the strong illusion of turning or accelerating on an entirely different axis. This action causes the pilot to think the aircraft is doing a maneuver that it is not. The disoriented pilot may maneuver the aircraft into a dangerous attitude in an attempt to correct the aircraft's perceived attitude. For this reason, it is important that pilots develop an instrument cross-check or scan that involves minimal head movement. The Aeronautical Information Manual, or the AIM, describes the Coriolis illusion as the most overwhelming of all illusions in flight, and states that it may be prevented by not making sudden extreme head movements, particularly while making prolonged constant rate turns under IFR conditions, end quote. Yeah. But this pilot had his instrument rating. How could he have been so susceptible to spatial disorientation? Well, it turns out the pilot hadn't made any entries to his logbook in the preceding six months. This is not good. Making it impossible to determine if he had met his instrument currency requirements to act as pilot in command in IMC. Also, not great for having other passengers in the plane, too. Not at all. Not not a good Because if you talk to Brendan... He usually will do a few flights on his own before yep. he invites anybody with him, especially if he hasn't flown in a while. Well, and I mean, part of that is, yes, good piloting and just being like, if you don't feel like you're up to speed, getting also, yourself like back up certain, to speed. There's a certain hour requirement but, you yep, need to. There are requirements for both night flying and even day currency to be able to take up any passengers. You have to have a certain number of hours, landings and hours yeah. and stuff. So. It's it's things that are required, and he's, I mean, he's a good pilot. He's He takes care of it. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. He um, well, also it, will go up with an instructor if he's not comfortable. Yep. 
And that's also the right thing to do. That's not to say that this pilot didn't make any flights or landings. He we just, just didn't put it in the logbook. So we'll never know. Right. The only person we could ask is him. Oh, wait. Oh, and I don't think we mentioned this, but all three of them perished. Yeah, they did. I said that. Yeah, all three perished. So, little on blurb, that note. little blurb on that. Three weeks after the crash was that Senate seat election. Right. Due to the laws at the time, Mel Carnahan could not be removed from the ballot. Oh, no. He managed to win that election. Oh, no. Being the only Senate candidate in U.S. history to win posthumously and leaving the opposing candidate to be the only one to lose to a deceased candidate. That sucks. <laughs> wow, can you imagine being the other candidate? In a you US lost Senate to race. a dead guy. Yeah. Ooh. Um, later on, he, he had some criticism about it. it. was an emotionally fueled election. He felt that he lost because wrongly because people voted for him. because He was, died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mel Carnahan's wife actually took the Senate seat oh. in the interim. Until a special election was then held, uh, I think it was the next year, she ran in that race, but lost to the opposing candidate. Okay. Which was a different Republican. Uh, right, than the one that ran previously. Right. Yes. Than the one who lost to the dead guy. Right. Yikes. Right, different candidate. So, that's, it's stamp on history. Yeah. So that was that's why this is kind of crazy, though, is because like this was somebody running for the Senate and was the governor of Missouri at the time. So they also had to have a special election for a governor. They had an interim. I don't remember who it was. It's usually the lieutenant governor. Yeah, it was. I think it was. Um, But I don't remember. Then they had a special election sometime later. So there you go. There's some Missouri history. Yeah. It's part of the reason why Mandy wanted to do this. Yes. It's a weird thing because we don't get to talk about general aviation very often, but this one actually involved some important people. Yeah. <laughs> some very important people. And I talked about a system I've never really gone in depth on before. Right. So. And an airplane we probably won't talk about again. So. There you go. Ta-da. Ta-da. Ba-da. Did they not do any findings, recommendations? No. Because nope. it was a GA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Nope. Oh, I suppose I should. Is there a thing? There's. I think there is a probable cause. And that's the only thing at the bottom. Okay. If I recall. There is! There's a probable cause! Ah. There's no findings or recommendations. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's failure to control the airplane while maneuvering because of spatial disorientation. Contributing to the accident were the failure of the airplane's primary attitude indicator and the adverse weather conditions, including turbulence. So, is there only one heading indicator? No, there's two. But the other... The other one was on the other, other side, side of the cockpit. So if someone was just sitting in that seat, it probably would have made it. Not necessarily, because then he might have like had to like push them out of the way. No, I mean they could have. He could have asked them, "What's the numbers reading on this indicator over here?" Oh, yeah, for yeah. heading, sure. So not really for. I mean, it would be really hard to do that with the thing. But it, even yeah. just the heading indicator itself would have been more helpful than. But yeah. all of that said, but that that's great and all, but. The reality is, is it's still a very difficult situation to put yourself in, no matter what, because spatial disorientation, I mean, it's very real, of course. He was having to deal with a lot, and yeah. I mean, he wasn't, he had a lot of hours, not a lot, a lot, but he had a lot of hours. He had and enough. Yeah, he had 1,800 hours, so he had some experience. He was flying an airplane, actually, he'd flown a lot, 
500 of those hours, which as a general aviation pilot, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think my dad has 500 hours on his airplane, so that's a lot. And, you know, you get to know those airplanes, but at the same time, you get yourself into a sticky situation in an airplane that moves really fast. And, you know, maybe you're not the most experienced pilot in the world and you you don't know. I mean, things 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 happen. My theory, not to do too much uh, speculation. speculation, but when you replace systems like that, you do the tests and such, but a lot of these connections are usually done with screws. Yeah. The electrical connections and such. The vacuum systems are usually done with screws or clamps. Yeah. For all we know, something got came in, loose. Something came loose on takeoff turbulence, something like that, and the pump could have been working just fine. Right. It had rotational marks, like it was working. But the, if something came loose in between, you couldn't find it in the wreckage because everything's in bits and pieces right. anyway. Yeah. The reality is they probably wouldn't know. So. Yikes. Yep. Yikes. All so. right, friendos. Well, that was November eight three five four November. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to my ex-coworker, Mandy, for recommending this episode. Uh, if you want to recommend weird stuff like this, I do weird stuff for Miranda Sotes. Yeah. All the time. Yep. I love doing weird ones because no one knows about them. And then I'm like, hey. Just make sure it has a report. Yeah. I, that goes for any recommendation you give us. Um, I know there's a few of you that have sent us stuff recently that you're like, I know there's no report. I'm like, then don't send it to us. <laughs> right. I mean, because, we can make a mini soda out of it, maybe sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, you can send us a little bit of information like the ASN page and stuff like that. That's mm -hmm. just great. But we like using the hard facts from the report. If it's really interesting and there's... Like someone making a bet some of landing with yeah. the shades closed. <laughs> yeah, like that. And there's some sort of information there somewhere that gives at least enough for a short story. Yeah. We can make a mini-sode out of it. But a lot of times we get these weird ones that are like, it's just another, you know... CFIT. CFIT. And there's not a whole lot on it on the Wikipedia page. There's no report. It's like, yeah, I know you want me to cover something local to you, but unfortunately... We can't find it. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I can tell you the airplane ran into something. That's it. Yeah, or something's entirely in French. Right. Or it's entirely in Russian. Some of those we can maybe do some... French is maybe doable. Russian? Mm, no. Yeah, no. I don't know. French is rough. I can, I can do French. It'd be okay. But... We've done Spanish. Yep. Anyway, just make sure... At the very least, that it has some sort of report. Yes. Even if it's a preliminary report, although preliminary yes. reports aren't great because they don't have the the, the actual cause causes right. of the accident. So yep. we just like having a full. I mean, a lot of you guys have said you liked how well researched our podcast is. That's because we use the reports, right? And we there's a lot of facts. information in there. I don't know if you've ever opened any uh, any page that has a report, which I think is almost all of ours. Yeah. For the most part, there might be a few that didn't have the report. Right. There's It's always linked. Yep. I always put a link to it unless it's a CAB report and you have to get it from the Department of Transportation. Right. Uh, that you can go look at any of the reports and see where we get all our information from. Yes, you can. And it's dry. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Trust me. Yeah. And it's long. Yep. Some of them. And sometimes I do research and I can only do it for like a couple hours at a time. Yeah. And I go, I need to come back to this. There is a hundred percent chance that you will find something in that report that we didn't cover because we condense. We also don't read everything. Right. Especially when a report is, uh, I don't know, 700 pages. Right. Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the same with almost every report. Some of these ones, like this one wasn't too long, so we got pretty much everything important out of it. But a lot of the ones that we cover where there's, they start to be hundreds of pages, we don't get everything. We just don't. I mean, we try to get everything interesting, everything meaningful, and everything important. There's a lot of stuff in there that's just fluff for them, too. I mean, they have to cover every system that wasn't a problem and yeah. why it wasn't a problem. They have to cover every factor, so weather, and why it wasn't a problem, why the pilot's not a problem, why, you know. So... A lot of those hundreds of pages ends up being nothing. Yeah. Really nothing. And there's several things that, I mean, I sometimes when I do my research, I'll go to the findings and I'll Mm -hmm. skip the findings first and be like, okay, what actually happened? Because sometimes even reading the analysis, you're like, okay, but what happened? Like what actually happened? What went wrong? Sometimes there's a synopsis at the beginning. Sometimes. Yeah. This one had one, I think. Though I know the one we're covering next week. Does. does anyway a long-winded thing to say we love your recommendations make sure we can actually do those recommendations guys uh and we'll tell you i mean if i can't find a report i'll say hey yep i can't find anything on this i mean and sometimes i have to say we need to talk it over and we'll let you know if we can do them or not because if we don't have enough information we just can't do it so yep that's fair all right, friendos. Sorry, that was a really long-winded thing at the end of the episode there. <laughs> it's okay. It fills uh, in the time. Again, if you want to check out the Patreon, we will be talking about vacation. All that information is on the website. You can also go to Patreon, search Hard Landings. We pop up. So yep. if you want to do that, feel free to do that. If you want to join for a month so you can hear about vacation and then cancel right after, we don't care. Great. You'll still get your merch. You'll still get merch. You'll still get all the stuff included with it for a month. Yep. So you can binge post episodes. Yep. If you think you can binge reels. it all in a month, which good for you. Go for it. <laughs> uh, one of our listeners has done it. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I know. There's a few actually. But if you if you can do it, then it. hey, good for you. Then yeah. You Get pay for that one month and. Yeah. If you good. want ducks, we're still doing ducks. Um, mm-hmm. Newsletter stuff's also up on the website. I will be sorry. I hopefully sent it out by the time this comes out. <laughs> I have it, it done. It's just I haven't sent it out. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, and then. We will do a listener episode this month for the past two months. Yes. Uh, we have a couple stories already. If you haven't submitted a story, you want to submit a story, we're asking for like summer stories, vacation stories, that kind of thing. Yep. Or just a story. Some people like have stories. just sent us stories and they're amazing and they're great. Some people have sent us great. like drowning stories. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wait, <laughs> I need more. So, wait. Some of your stories are just great. Yeah. So really enjoy go ahead and send us a story if you'd like us to read it. If you've never listened to one of those, I highly suggest you go listen. A lot of them are very funny and entertaining. So, mm-hmm. all right, friendos. Uh, we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we will catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.